Hey, Sminty listeners, Bridget here. Your favorite Pisces has a birthday coming up, and guess what? Y'all are all invited. I'm hosting a birthday party in Washington, D.C. on Sunday, March 11th to benefit Thrive D.C., an organization that fights homelessness. Want to party with me? All you need to do is bring a box of heavy flow or overnight maxi pads or tampons to donate to a D.C. woman experiencing homelessness. Look out for more deets on the Sminty Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram channels, and I hope to see y'all there. Hey, this is Bridget, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now today, we're talking all about the women of Black Panther. No, I don't mean Angela Davis, though that would make a great episode. I'm talking about the women of Wakanda. First, quick spoiler alert. I don't think today's conversation will give away any major plot aspects, but we'll be talking about the movie in full. So if you want to go in fresh, just know this might be an episode that you want to pause on. Unless you've been living under a rock, you probably already know that Black Panther is a pretty big deal. But first, let's talk about Hollywood's landscape and why that is. According to the Motion Picture Association of America, women made up 52% of all 2016 moviegoers, an increase from 2015, which is about 51%. So even while conventional wisdom might suggest that women aren't the ones buying tickets to big blockbuster movies, we actually are. And that's one aspect that makes the disparity of women on screen so frustrating. A lot of us are buying movie tickets and wanting to see our stories on the big screen. We just don't get that many opportunities to do so. We already know that Hollywood is pretty male and pretty white. But women and people of color are thirsting to see their own stories told on the big screen. That was pretty clear when the movie Wonder Woman smashed both the patriarchy and box office records, raking in a whopping $100.5 million in ticket sales and going on to become the highest grossing opening weekend for a film directed by a woman. And while it has a male director, the film Girls Trip also made history by being the only film to have made $100 million at the box office that was written, produced, and directed by Black talent and has a Black female cast. So it turns out, just like anyone else, marginalized voices just want to see their stories reflected on screen. And even though Black Panther has a male director, Ryan Coogler, it's really given audiences a dynamic portrayal of badass women on the big screen. In this movie, women kick ass. They plan. They strategize. They lead. They fight with spears and in some cases, ride on the tops of cars down the busy streets of Korea. Slate's Aisha Harris really nailed why this movie feels so different. She writes, Women typically play third or fourth fiddle or just playing damsels in distress in these movies. And more often than not, with very rare exception of black women played any real part in these stories at all. Just as Wakanda is a utopian symbol for black people and its depiction of a nation relatively untouched by colonialism, so does it now represent an ideal world in which men and women coexist respectfully on an equal playing field. Let's hear from some of the stars of the film about why the roles of women are so different in Black Panther. We're all very specific, very individual, very powerful in our own ways, and um, therefore very effective and influential. Seeing these women, you know, seeing this Dora Milaje and and Shuri, you know, these women who who support him, he can't do it without them. He can't, you know, there is no king without a queen, (laughs) you know, is the is the, the thought, the sentiment in, in African nations, you know? And so that queen is his mother, his sister, the all-female guard, <laughs> you know? After this quick break, we'll talk more about the feminism of the movie Black Panther with Jenna Wortham, host of the podcast Still Processing. Mm-hmm. 
And we're back. So after I saw Black Panther, all I wanted to do was talk about the badass women in this film with my friends. And when I think badass women, I think none other than the New York Times' Jenna Wortham. You might know Jenna as one of the co-hosts of the New York Times podcast, Still Processing. She's also a culture editor for the New York Times. And even though I hate talking on the phone, I was so excited to call Jenna up to get her thoughts. Here's how that conversation went down. And if you're thinking, huh, this sounds a bit weird, that's because, full disclosure, you're listening to two gals talking on the phone in my apartment. Jenna, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So you guys actually just put out an episode all about Black Panther with the one and only Ta-Nehisi Coates, which was fabulous. If y'all haven't heard it, I would definitely recommend checking it out. One of the things that I really identified with in that conversation was how you talked about the way that Black Panther, there was a lot of hoopla surrounding it and a lot of hype. And in some ways, that can almost be a little bit of a turnoff. But then when you go see the movie, you know, it's such a great movie. Um, Why do you think it is that a lot of times we feel like if we don't go see a movie like this on opening weekend and make a huge deal about it, that we almost sort of won't be given another shot at having our stories told on screen? Yeah, I mean, because that's usually what happens, right? I mean, there are so few of our stories, and by our, I just mean non-mainstream, you know, typical white narratives that end up making it to the theaters that when there is something, you know, we know these decisions are made by, in part influenced by how much people spend on the movies, how much people go to the movies. A lot of movie trends are shaped by capitalism. So when there is a big moment, there's a big movie, it feels like, yes, we have to support it to make sure that other movies like this are made. And I should clarify, and when we were talking about the hype, I was, I was all for the hype of Black Panther. I love comic book movies. I see all the standalone ones. Like I saw Logan in the theaters. Like I love everything about the comic book universes that have been created. It's just, it's a, it's a form of storytelling that I just really, really enjoy on the big screen. But I did kind of resent this idea that, you know, each and every single black person in America and around the world had to support this movie or else it would be our fault that it failed. No, it's not our, it wouldn't be our fault if it was terrible. You know I mean? That's just not how it works. It shouldn't be. We only get one shot at a movie like Black Panther. I just, I really didn't like the idea that we had to be street teaming this movie for it to be successful. And the truth is that honestly, it doesn't really work. I mean, remember how much money Hidden Figures made? It's not like they're making a sequel or, you know, there's 10 other movies like that in the pipeline. You know, Hollywood makes the stories it wants to see. And it really, you know, I wish I could say that they did pay attention to that. But for the most part, it seems like they don't. Yeah. On the one hand, it's almost a lot of pressure for marginalized people to sort of create these one, like, you know, personal ad campaigns for these movies to get their friends to go see it. I actually don't really like superhero movies. And so when this first came out, I was like a little bit mad, not because it didn't seem like a great movie, just because it's not a genre that I personally enjoy. But then I did feel this weird pull. Like I have to go see this movie opening weekend. I have to support, you know, I have to go out and get dressed up in in a costume and go see it because it felt like, you know, this is our thing. We have to support it. And it's sort of, it's almost sort of not fair to feel like you have to do that because I don't think that other, I don't think that white men feel that way when there's a movie that, that spotlights white men. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No, totally. And also the movies are so expensive. So I just feel like this idea that someone that, you know, needs to spend like a hundred dollars to take their family to the movies or else, 
your child doesn't get a black superhero is a really false equivalency. It's just totally unfair. I totally agree with you. But I have to say, though, because some people did respond to us speaking in that way about the, uh, the movie on the podcast, that we were super hyped for the movie. It was just this idea that its success rested on our individual backs, which, again, yeah, is totally, um, I don't know, like out of pocket. Like, that's not fair. It's not fair. And another good point that you make is I feel like every couple of months this happens, right? There's a movie where, you know, whether it's Girls Trip or Hidden Figures, like you mentioned a second ago, there's a movie where people think, oh, well, this movie was so successful. Clearly, audiences are thirsting for stories about people more than just white men. And it mm-hmm. seems like we have this conversation every few months when one of these movies does gangbusters. And then we, like, nothing ever happens. It's still the same conversation. Like we're stuck in this echo chamber of this big movie with an with a inclusive cast and inclusive crew, you know, doing really well and people thinking, oh, this is going to change the game. And then we had that same conversation in a month. For sure. I'm really interested to see what happens with Coco. Coco is more of an example that I'm interested in because I feel like it, it wasn't, it is a Pixar movie, but it wasn't based, it, didn't, it wasn't rooted in some bigger franchise already or have any real roots to it beyond just this original story that was created. And I don't know if you've seen it, but Coco is this incredible Pixar animated film about a little boy who reconnects with his, the spirits of his ancestors during the Day of the Dead in Mexico. And a lot of the movies in Spanish, a lot of the songs are in Spanish. The soundtrack slaps. It is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I cried the whole time. That's definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. And it's a really beautiful celebration of Mexican culture that we don't get. If you haven't seen Coco, here's a little taste. What color is the sky? I'm your amor, I'm your amor. You tell me that it's red. I'm your amor, I'm your amor. Where should I put my shoes? I'm your amor, I'm your amor. You say put them on your head. I'm your amor, I'm your amor. And it made so much money. It made so much money, which is really interesting. You think about a lot of the policies that our current administration is pushing, right? Which is to get rid of people who this movie is for. So I, I feel like. That, to me, feels like a much more interesting case study because, of course, Marvel's going to make more Black Panther movies, and, of course, they're going to make more superhero movies. That's a given just because that's what they're doing, and those are the biggest blockbusters, and they go international. But a movie like Coco, I feel, is about such a marginalized group in this country that we don't talk about, and for it to do so well and to be such a hit cross-genre, cross-demographic, I feel I'll be so interested to see if that translates to beyond just a one-off case. Totally. I'm so glad that you brought up Coco because in your podcast episode about Black Panther, you talked about how we're at a time where blackness can feel very attacked and clearly like overtly being brownness is under attack right now as well. And so if you're someone who speaks Spanish, someone who's an immigrant, someone from a Spanish speaking country, it's interesting that a movie like Coco that uplifts all of those different aspects and uplifts the beauty of all of those different you know, parts of your identity is doing so well right now at a time when it seems like those very identities are, are under attack in a very real way. Exactly. Yeah, so one of my biggest questions about movies like this, I saw a lot of folks on Twitter being like, oh, it's just a movie, blah, blah, blah. But we know that representation is really important. Why, do, why is it so important that we have films like Coco, films like Black Panther, showing these different narratives and telling these different stories? Mm, Oh, my God, I love that question. I mean, it just makes you feel seen, you know? I don't think we realize the lasting trauma and damage of not seeing yourself on screen. Like, I don't think you you really understand what 
it meant to spend your whole childhood watching Buffy and Smallville and Roswell and all these really cool movies about, you know, young teen girls with a special destiny and purpose who were really thin, white, cute hair that flipped perfectly. <laughs> and the game of Buffy Summers, you know, like perfect midriff. What's the actress's name again? It's escaping me, but... Um, Sarah Michelle Gellar? Yes, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my body. This work. Yeah, thank you. But, no, she's incredible. But I just, you know, growing up watching that stuff, like if I were a teen now and could watch Black Lightning, you know, like I just might have a very different relationship to myself and my body. I was at a screening the other day with um, Ava DuVernay, and she was showing us A Wrinkle of Time, and it was great because I thought it was going to be this kind of stuffy, uptight New York media thing. And it was all kids. She's, like, rented out the theater for all these black girls, and it was awesome. And she was saying, you know, with A Wrinkle in Time, for example, she was like, yes, the reason it matters is it's not just about little girls, little black girls seeing themselves on screen. It's about white <laughs> boys learning to work with black women and trust them and respect them and see them as nerds. And I was like, whoa, like I hadn't really thought about how important it is, not just for us, but for everyone else around us to understand that they aren't at the center of every story. I mean, that's, that's like the biggest takeaway that I've really been chewing over in the last couple of days. It's, it is about us, but it's also about other people being able to see us in these roles too. That is so deep because you know, like you just said, if you can't see it on screen, you can't really be it. And so, of course, it's important for little black and brown girls to see themselves. But it's also important for little white boys and white men to understand that, you know, young girls, that women and girls of color have agency, you know, are equals, and to learn how to see and work with them, whether it's, you know, in a movie or behind the scenes of a movie. I think showing that on screen and presenting those models, I think is really an important aspect that I hadn't even really considered. Oh, yeah, for sure. Same here, though. Like, she said it, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, of course, you know? Totally. So let's talk about some of the roles for women, the women of Wakanda. Um, one of the things I thought was so cool about how women are portrayed in Black Panther is that you don't get the sense that there's some sort of gender-based hierarchy in Wakanda, right? The women have these badass roles, whether they're fighting, whether they're known for their technical prowess, and you don't get the sense that women are treated as these frail objects, they are, seem to be on the same decision-making plank as men. Did you notice this? Mm, yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's what they wanted us to think in the movie. I mean, <laughs> I'll believe that if I... I mean, no, no, just just knowing that it's based on a comic book. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not Wonder Woman. You know, it's, it's Black Panther, and the Black Panther, you know, traditionally the lineage of that comic, the Black Panther role is pretty much always a man. I mean, I know there is a comic, and there is in the reimagining that Ta-Nehisi Coates has been working on, Shuri, who's T'Challa's little sister, at some point does become Black Panther, but only temporarily. So I'm, you know, in, in, in my super feminist lens, I'm like, sure, it's great that the women seem like equals, but they're on council, they're serving as the guards, they're serving as technicians. Those are not necessarily leader roles. I mean, they're not the leader. They're leadership roles, but they're not leading Wakanda. So I think for me, I'm kind of like, if they were like, oh, you know, Angela Bassett was the last Blood Panther, that would be tight. Like, I'd be like, oh, yeah, but it was T'Challa's dad. So I'm kind of like, sure, but to me, it still feels the women might be more equal, but it still felt a little patriarchal. And I don't want to diminish how badass all the women were in the movie. They definitely were. But it wasn't as, like, Afrofuturistic in that way for me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it, it really goes to show how far we have to go because 
you know, what, like call me when they make a Black Panther that's a woman and that's a woman the entire time, right? Like, like when mm-hmm. Angela Bassett signs on to play the character, like the titular role, that's the movie that I'm going to, you know, completely be here for. Not that I wasn't here for Black Panther, but that would be, would be really, really bad. And to be fair, like, I actually think it's coming, and this was the first movie, so I think there is a lot to do, and I think they're willing to do it. Like, I've never gotten the impression that they wouldn't explore it, and, you know, there is a lot of the movie that we saw was based on some of the world of Wakanda comics that have been rewritten, and Shuri is a Black Panther in them, and so I just think it's so possible. And, I, you know, there was the news that Marvel signed on to do, like, 10 more movies, and so, like, everyone's speculating, well, how many of those are Black Panther spinoffs? And I actually think that the response to Dora Milaje, which is the all-woman guard that... Um, Wakanda and Sarutala, I think that they might get their a spinoff movie. I mean, anything is possible. The number of movies that are being made right now that deal in those, the DC comics and the Marvel universes are just astounding because they do tend to make so much money. So I kind of feel like it's not out of the realm of possibility at all. And it would be, it would be so baller if like, you know, Lupita has a, a filmmaking company now. Like, maybe she can produce one. You know, maybe Denai can do it. But Denai is an incredible playwright. You know, she wrote a clip. So I just think there does seem to be way more possibilities than there have been. So I'm not trying to knock it at all. I'm really excited to see what they do next. Yeah, it kind of opens up the door to the future of what, what will be. And I'm, yeah. I'm really excited to see what Black Panther leads to down the line. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So you brought up the character of Shuri. She's one of my favorite characters in the movie because she's sort of spunky and she bucks tradition. And I'm, I'm a youngest sister, and it's very interesting to see the sort of spunky little sister role on screen. You don't really have a lot of totally. movies that, that play with the brother-sister dynamic in quite that way, which I, which I love. And, of course, I love that she is the, like the technology officer of Wakanda. She's the one who you know, knows the latest stuff. She knows how to make the really cool shoes and the really cool suit. And I couldn't help but think about um, this amazing black woman astronaut, Mae Jemison. her talking about how when she was a kid, she didn't really think that she could be a black female astronaut until she saw the character on Star Trek when she was a kid. And that, that character Aww. had a, I don't know if you ever watched it, but she was a lieutenant. You know, she had a really technical role on the ship. And mm-hmm. Mae Jemison actually credits her with the reason why she thought she could become an astronaut, which she later did. And she actually went on to be on the show Star Trek in a guest role. And so it's interesting where I can't help but wonder how many little girls are watching this spunky girl with her cute braids, you know, lead technology for a nation and think, I can do that. I know. It's so exciting. And it's you know, it's real because sometimes we don't even know what's possible until we glimpse it. And I just mean that even like that there could be a job like that. I mean, so much of what we know is shaped by what we have access to and what we have access to is very much guided by popular culture and whatever's trending. And so in order to be able to see yourself, yeah, as someone who works on a ship or works on, who builds cars or builds trains, whatever. It's like someone who designs the infrastructure. It's like you see that and you're like, oh, can I do that? How do I do that? What's that job? I mean, that's even how I became a journalist. Like I didn't really, I mean, I've, obviously I knew that people wrote for a living, but I didn't know how people wrote for a living. I was like, do you, can you do that freelance? Do you have to be an author? Do you have to be this? And then it was in the course of studying abroad and I was actually doing a program in um, public health in London, and I started meeting authors, and I was like, so what is your day-to-day like? And they laid it out for me, and I was like, oh, I could do that. I mean, it, it was literally as simple as that. Like, I just, 
you know, if I had been smarter, I would have Googled, like, how to become an author. But that still isn't even necessarily enough. It's like you really have to see it and hear it and understand what that looks like in order to visualize yourself in it. Absolutely. Funny that you say that. My, my sort of becoming a journalist and a writer and a media person is similar but much less cool than your story. When I was a kid, I used to watch that show Living Single, and Queen Latifah's yeah. character <laughs> oh runs God, yes. Flavor Magazine. And yes, I, thought, I, I don't know. do that. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so good. Yes, incredible. That's so yeah, cool. I wonder, similarly, I bet an entire generation of black women and girls were like, oh, I knew I wanted to be a media professional when I saw that. Yeah, it's, so, it's so important. This representation is so important. So I have one last question for you. It's a little bit of a curveball. So I went to see Black Panther and I wore a ridiculous outfit because I felt like that's kind of what you do. I kind of gave yes. into all the hoopla. I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to wear something kooky. Did you wear a cool outfit? Oh, I had so much pressure. I felt so much pressure going to see it because I was like, what am I going to wear? Like, everyone's going to dress up. And people were Instagramming their cool outfits. And Kimberly Drew, who's one of my really good friends and one of my collaborators, Instagrammed her outfit. And it was like this amazing matrix-like latex. And I was like, damn it, like, I don't have anything to wear. So I just, this is a very long way of saying, I tried to look good, but I don't know that I looked necessarily cool. When I went to the screening, the media screening, I just wore regular schmegler clothes. But then I went to the premiere, I just tried to like have good eye makeup on. Do you know what I mean? Like I was just like, let me put some glitter on because this is the best I can do. And people, people showed up and they showed out and I was, I was sad to be a little, a little under stress, I have to admit. Well, I think you went out, you supported it. I'm sure you looked great. I kind of, as soon as I, I, I went to a weird screening. I went to see it in Georgetown and Washington, D.C., and mm-hmm. it was a very early morning screening. And so perhaps not the screening where people would be dressed to impress. We'll say <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, Jenna, I am so happy that you were able to join us today. Where can folks find out more of what you're up to? I know that you kind of do it all from Black Goose <laughs> to <laughs> podcasting. Where can folks find out what you're up to? Um, well, my social handle across pretty much everything is at Jenny Deluxe. And for the podcast, it's nytimes.com forward slash still processing. Jenna, thank you so much for being here with us today. Wakanda forever. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So we already know that the women of Wakanda have had a huge impact on the big screen. But what about IRL? More on that after this quick break. And we're back. One of the coolest things about Black Panther is that even though it's this amazing fantasy movie, it's also had some real-world implications. You heard Jenna and I talking about the character of Shuri, played by Letitia Wright, who's one of the movie's most important characters, and she's this badass Black woman in STEM. She is in charge of all the technology of the world of Wakanda. She's very hip. She bucks tradition. And at only 16, she's among the smartest in the nation of Wakanda and directs all the tech development in this advanced nation, including weaponry and armor. And even though she's a fictional character, Shuri has gone on to become an inspiration for black girls in STEM. Disney donated $1 million to boys and girls clubs across the country to operate STEM centers, including one in Oakland, California, where, spoiler alert, if you've seen the movie, you already know, Shuri ends up running Wakanda's first tech outreach center. So when we're talking about Wakanda, life really imitates art. And beyond that, some real-life Wakandan women warriors are using Black Panther to create change IRL. They spun up the Wakanda the Vote campaign. 
an initiative that lets folks set up voter registration events at local theaters or register to vote via text message. The initiative is run by Jessica Bird, who runs Three Point Strategies, a firm of Black women who work to elect Black political leaders and create social change. Jessica, I'm so happy to have you here today. So I have to ask, why was it important for you to get folks registered to vote at the movies when they're seeing Black Panther? Well, so um, Three Point Strategies is currently um, anchoring and co-leading the Electoral Justice Project, which is a project that was launched by the Movement for Black Lives just this past uh, October 2017. And essentially the idea was to really harness the energy of Black-led social movements um, who have historically used protests and direct action and, um, you know, other means of intervention uh, to interrupt systems. And so we believe that the electoral system is a, is a system just like any other. And so we are launching this project specifically to intervene in a system that doesn't work for us, which is currently the electoral system. And so, you know, for us, we didn't want to build a project that was just reactionary and um, only in opposition, but we wanted to build a project that also felt like it centered Black joy. And so as people started to get really excited about Black Panther and we heard about people outfits that they were going to be wearing and, you know, just just how much it seemed like a cultural phenomenon, we were like, we definitely need to do something for the movement for Black Lives. And so that is how Wakanda the Vote was born. I love that. I especially love this idea of harnessing the power of Black joy because, you know, I went to Black Panther dressed kind of goofy. Uh, other folks I saw on Instagram were dressed kind of goofy. It was a fun funny, memeable, Instagrammable kind of event for the ages. And I think it's it's something, there's something to harnessing that energy because, listen, Blackness is not just about the heavy, intense moments. It's also about fun, about joy, about those experiences that connect us with our brothers and sisters. And, you know, really harnessing on that is so special. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I also think that, you know, um, so often folks in power, which are often white people, white men, folks with money, you know, they always get to have a self, you know, determined political agenda. They always get to build strategy on based on what they're dreaming about and what they want. And, you know, so black people, we want to do the same thing. Not everything that we do, it should be about our death or about the fact that we have to turn up because you are taking healthcare away from millions of people or because you're breaking up millions of families um, through racist, hateful laws. Like we, we also have a vision for how we want our, our families um, and our communities to look. And so, you know, I think that part of this project is to do both at the same time, which we think is possible, which is to fight back is to tell our opposition that their time is limited and that we're going to we're going to contend them for power but then i also think it's a time for us to really be dreaming and innovative with black people about saying all right so we have this beautiful vision for black lives how do we actually elect the right people write the right policies and build the 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 type of um of cultural civic engagement that we really deserve I love it. So what's next for Wakanda the Vote? Oh, it's great. So, um, well, first and foremost, I just want to name that we have registered nearly 5,000 voters um, over the course of three weeks. Wow. Uh, we've had 163 voter registration drives in every single state in this entire country. 
Um, and so we feel really proud about the way that um, Black Movement is demonstrating that not only can you know we show up for these for these moments when we need to fight back, but that we also can have a lot of fun and really respond to ways to be civically engaged. And so what's next is that actually today launches Wrinkle the Vote. Um, And so, you know, not only did we want to honor this really beautiful black film experience, but, you know, we believe that Avery DuVernier um, in building this really beautiful women of color led and centered film for Wrinkle in Time was also a moment for us to like continue this strategy and like re-engage uh, people and young women who are going to the theater. So um, we'll be registering voters all this weekend. And then um, the Electoral Justice Project is also launching an organizing fellowship. And so we, if you, if you check out ejp.m4bl.org, um, you can find out more about how to potentially become a campaign manager for an issue in your community that you want to fight and win on. I love it. Using the power of Hollywood and fiction and storytelling to create real change in the world. I love that. Jessica, you're amazing. Your work is amazing. Where can folks keep up with you? Well, so you can follow me on Twitter at Jessica L. Bird, spelled B-Y-R-D. Um, obviously, we'd love for you to um, check out uh, the Electoral Justice Project. So again, that's ejp.m4bl.org. And right now, if you text EJP to 91990. You'll be caught up on our email list and our text messaging list so you can keep up with all of the incredible projects that we plan uh, to lead on this this year. And hopefully in November, we'll, we'll see some electoral justice. Well, Sminty listeners, we want to hear from you. Did you go see Black Panther? Did you dress as ridiculously as I did to go see it? What were your thoughts? Did you like it, not like it? We want to know. Find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, and as always, shoot us an email at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Mm-hmm.